The words to these songs, our God, are overwhelming. They are amazing. They are worthy of all of our lives, all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength to be given to you in adoration and love. They are significant enough to give us courage to live for you in a world that is uncertain, in a world that is as a total and a hostility to you, in a world that can become increasingly violent towards the truth and towards your name. And yet, the fact that we are hidden in you, the fact that you will return, you will establish your kingdom on this earth, you will create a new heavens and earth, our soul is redeemed, and there is nothing that man can do from us for to us except take our life, but what do they take? That which is going to end anyway, for our life is truly wrapped up in yours and our union with you, and we can never lose that because you live forever. Help us to rejoice in that truth, to hold on to it, to meditate on it. And help us this morning to uh, come to a greater clarity of what it means to give our lives to you fully in this passage of Matthew in which you answered that lawyer, that scribe, so many years ago that now we look at to be instructed in our own life and in our own walk with you. So come and teach us. May you be honored and pleased with our time. We pray in your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. We're coming near the end of this chapter. We will have this week and then next week before we enter into chapter 23. This morning we will be looking at verses 34 through 40. So Matthew 22 verses 34 through 40. And as we come to this passage this morning, we come to Jesus' definition of what it means to know God, or what it means to have true spirituality, what it means or what it looks like to have genuinely experienced salvation, and what it means to walk with God. Now, throughout the history of the church, spirituality has been defined in a variety of ways, and it's taken a variety of forms, popular spirituality, that is. From the 2nd to 4th century, it was epitomized primarily by martyrdom. The height of spirituality and devotion to God was giving your life for Him for the name of Christ. After the Edict of Milan in 313 AD, martyrdom was no longer the issue and the primary way of displaying total devotion to God was the ascetic life or living the monkish life in a monastery. In the Middle Ages, the height of spirituality in the visible church was that of the mystics, some mystical union, unmediated spiritual ecstasy with the risen Christ was considered to be the height of spirituality. Today, it may be defined as by feeling very close to God in a very personal way, but often this is apart from the church and sometimes apart from any religion or commitment to God at all. It's a highly individualized experience. It's just my own experience uh, before God. That makes me then a spiritual person, they might say. Or for some within the professing church, it might be speaking in tongues, entering a state of spiritual ecstasy. It may be the strong emotional feeling that comes when listening to Christian music or being in a certain environment, often where music is at the center uh, stage. Or it may be that it's defined simply by living a moral and religious life. The Jews in Jesus' day defined spirituality primarily by rigorous commitment to the law of God. Supplemented, of course, as we know, with the rabbinic tradition for the Pharisaical stream of Judaism in that day. In which the oral tradition was the height of commitment to God and to His law by keeping all these uh, other commandments. In our passage this morning, Jesus cuts through all of these and identifies the essence of what it means to know God. All spirituality, salvation itself, is at its very heart summarized in the command to love God with everything and to love your neighbor as yourself. If you want to know if you are a Christian, a simple question to ask is, do you love Christ? Do you love Christ with everything? And if you want to know if you're growing as a Christian, if you are one, then the simple question to ask, am I growing to love Christ more 
each day. Do I love him more now than I did last week and a year ago? That is essentially what Jesus is addressing in our passage this morning. Read it with me, Matthew 22, verses 30 through, 34 through 40. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Go back up to verse 34 and let's notice a question that comes from a heart that does not know God. A question that comes from a heart that does not know God. And notice first then a desperate conspiracy from which this question flows. He identifies this huddling together of the Pharisees again in an attempt to trap Jesus, and he says, when the Pharisees heard that he silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. This is now round three in Israel's leadership in their uh, attempt to discredit the Lord Jesus Christ. Both the Pharisees and the Herodians, or disciples of the Pharisees, lost the first round in a question about taxes. The Sadducees lost the second round in a discussion about the resurrection. And now the Pharisees come in themselves after hearing the Sadducees had been silent for round three in another attempt to attack Jesus. They had heard then that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, that he had silenced them. This is a striking term. The basic idea in this context is to cause someone to have nothing to say. In other contexts, it's used of muzzling an animal, putting a muzzle over their mouth. And that's essentially what Jesus has done repeatedly to these leaders. He's exposed their unbelief and ignorance, and essentially he muzzles them and he sends them away with nothing to say, with mouths closed and with no excuse. So the Pharisees, again, having heard that Jesus did this to the Sadducees, and note here, the Pharisees would have agreed with Jesus completely. They would have agreed with everything that he said to them. But nonetheless, they realized that the Sadducees had failed in their attempt to do him any harm in the eyes of the crowds. And so now they're going to come at it again. And so Matthew tells us then that they gathered themselves together. It was a huddle, as it were, to come up with a game plan to again try to defeat him and discredit him before the people. As they are huddled together, one from among them, a lawyer who is essentially an expert in Jewish law, comes up with a question to ask him. Now Mark 12, 28, in a parallel account, calls this man a scribe. And a scribe and a lawyer are essentially interchangeable terms. They are both experts in the law. Both experts in the law. They're from the same class of people in Jewish culture and society. Now, Matthew uses the term lawyer sparingly, actually only here in his gospel, but Luke uses lawyer's identification of this group several times, and it's worthy of us paying attention to. In Luke 10.25, he identifies the rich young ruler that we looked at back in Matthew 19.16 as a lawyer. So the rich young ruler was from the same class of lawyers, the one who asked, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? In Luke 14.3, Jesus addresses a group of lawyers who condemned him for healing a man on the Sabbath. Most significantly, in the climax of his exchange with this group, comes in Luke chapter 11, verses 45 through 46. Here, Jesus excoriates them for their participation in a false, legalistic, and oppressive religion, a religion of Pharisaic Judaism. He says this in Luke 11, just listen as I read. Woe to you lawyers as well, for you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter, and you hindered those who were entering." Now, this is precisely the same charge that Jesus is going to levy against the scribes and the Pharisees in chapter 23, specifically verses 4 and 13. 
And essentially what he's doing is he's saying, by your knowledge and application of the law to the people, which is done without a true knowledge of God, you have contributed to a system that blinds an entire nation religiously to knowing their God and to honoring them with his life, with their lives, from knowing his mercy. They have essentially oppressed the people with unnecessary burdens that have acted as a barrier to their knowing and serving God. And he condemns them for this. Now while this is true of this class as a whole, the rich young ruler shows us that there are varying degrees of spiritual hardness among this group. As a matter of fact, at the end of our episode here, it's not recorded by Matthew, but it's recorded by Mark, in Mark chapter 12, Jesus will say to this man who agreed with uh, Jesus' answer and say, you are not far from the kingdom. He did not say you are in the kingdom, but you are not far from the kingdom. And it's possible that this lawyer came with a heart similar similar to that of the rich young ruler, that he was not necessarily to be associated with the more violent among those of the Pharisees. But in either case, he comes with a question that flows from a wrong understanding of the law and from a false spiritual system. So note his misguided question, secondly. His misguided question. He says, teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? Now, quite honestly, it's not exactly clear what this lawyer is trying to do to Jesus. This was not a unknown of, uh, an unknown of debate among the rabbis. It's possible that he's merely trying to entangle Jesus in some rabbinical debate for the purpose of trying to leverage some kind of charge against him, to try to entangle him and distract him from his teaching the crowds. Whatever the person, purpose, though, the question shows the spiritual blindness of his heart and his legalistic mindset. Now, in one sense, the Pharisees considered every law to be of equal value before God. There's plenty in rabbinic writings that's recorded for us in the Mishnah, which is a second century document where the oral tradition was written down after the destruction of the temple. And there's plenty in there among the rabbis in which they considered all of the word of God, at that time all of the Old Testament, to be of equal value and worthy of obedience by God's people. I'll give you one example. Uh, from Abbath chapter 2, it says this, a rabbi says, which is the straight way that a man should choose? That which is an honor to him and gets him honor from men. And be heedful of a light precept as of a weighty one, for thou knowest not the recompense of reward of each precept. In other words, what he's saying, a judgment or reward will come in response to one's obedience to the law. Therefore, obey every law, whether it be weighty or whether it be light. So that kind of thinking was present among the rabbis. And it was very present, actually. That's not an unusual thought from that rabbi. However, the statement also reveals that they did categorize commandments based on the seriousness of their offense to God. In fact, the rabbis divided the law into 613 commandments. 248 of these commandments were positive and 365 of them were negative. And they had an ongoing discussion about which of these commandments was the least significant and which of these commandments was the most significant. For some rabbis, for example, the least significant came in Deuteronomy chapter 22.6 where there's instructions there about how to handle a bird's nest when you come upon it. And for others, the weightiest commandment was that in Exodus chapter 20 verse 12 about children honoring their parents. Now Jesus did not divide the law up into these categories. He did not assent to this kind of rabbinic division of the law. But he did himself acknowledge that some parts of the law were weightier than other parts of the law. Now, we've already come across this once. Actually, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 19, I'll read it to you. He says, Jesus, Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Significantly, he's going to do this in the following chapter, 
when we eventually get there in verse 23. So Matthew 23, 23. He says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. So while Jesus acknowledged that justice and mercy were weightier aspects than the law, and the law even weightier than tithing, he asserts that one should not be done without neglecting the other. And the issue for Jesus is this, that all of life is to be brought under submission and obedience to God, both in attitude and action. He was essentially saying that true religion is demonstrated in an attitude of humble holiness, holiness, not the minute details of the law. Now this is worthy of mentioning for this. Jesus is bringing these together. The Pharisees or the legalists separated these two things, action and attitude, largely. Theirs was not driven by a whole heart motivation to God completely. But to support their own sense of righteousness and exaltation by the people, they demonstrated rather a heart of intellectual, spiritual, and moral pride, which is will be Jesus' point again in chapter 23, right after this episode, when he says in verse 4, You tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but you yourselves are unwilling to move them with a finger. And in fact, they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. Now certainly... The legalist, and this is an important point, would have said, would have verbalized, and again, this was very present in rabbinical literature, that they loved God with all of their heart, that's why they did what they did, and in fact, love to God was the primary aspect of the law. We'll mention that point again. But what I would want you to notice is they would say that, they would say that with their mouth. But Jesus' point is this, that if the minute discussions were truly driven by a love for God, then it would also produce and be evident in your life a heart of justice, a heart of mercy, and a heart of concern for others, particularly your neighbor. But because love for God was not truly what was driving their heart, instead of justice, mercy, and love for their neighbor, it produced in them an attitude of harshness, of separation, of judgmentalness toward others, and a sense of superiority. And ultimately, it resulted in a spiritual and religious system that oppressed others. So while they said that they loved God, and they said that was the motivation for their obedience, in fact, their lives demonstrated something quite different. So this question then is coming from that kind of system, that kind of false religious, legalistic system. And that is what Jesus is then going to confront. Let's notice secondly then an answer that gets at the very heart of knowing God. So the question came from one who does not truly know God and now the answer is driving at what is at the heart of knowing God. So look at verse 37. And he said, Jesus did, to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now again, this is an amazing statement. Not because it is a new insight. Not because it is something that they had never put together themselves. But because it is comprehensive. It is simple and it is clear and it gets to the very essence in such a short statement of what it means to know God. But even more than that, even more than that, this statement essentially establishes the very purpose of humanity. The very purpose of why we exist as human beings. The very core and essential requirement of God to men who bear His image is to love Him with all of who they are and to love their neighbor as Himself. What is required of us who are made in the image of God? What is required of men but to love God with all of our heart, our soul, our strength, and our mind and to love our neighbor as ourselves? Again, this is the very heart of salvation. It is what it means to know God. It is the very reality that is produced in someone when they experience regeneration, when they have received new life 
by the Spirit of God. It's what it means to be born again. That a heart that does not do this by nature is turned to do this with all joy and gladness and commitment. It is, again, the very essence of what it means to know God. Now, let's briefly consider these statements, and then we're going to make several observations about them. First, then, the first comes from Deuteronomy 6.5, to love God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. It's part of what is known as the Shema. It was repeated by the Jews daily, and it was written down on small sheets of paper by the most religiously scrupulous among the Pharisees, and it was placed in a little black box on their head while they prayed, called phylacteries. As a matter of fact, you can look at Orthodox Jews today when they're at the Wailing Wall and see this on their head or pictures of them. Now, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, essentially said this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now, you'll notice here that Matthew drops might and has mind there. Those were closely associated in the Hebrew, and Mark keeps might. And he's essentially, Matthew is focusing then on the inner aspect of what it means to know God. Now by saying heart, soul, and mind, neither Moses nor Matthew is dividing people into three distinct parts. In fact, these terms are largely throughout Scripture interchangeable. Rather, it is a comprehensive way of saying that you are to love God with everything. You are to love God with all of your faculties. You are to love God with everything that makes you, uh, makes you who you are. Everything is to be devoted to God in love of Him. As a matter of fact, the same division, and I'll mention this to you, is in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, and the idea is the same there. He says this, now may the God, Paul does to the Thessalonians, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, may every part of you in its fullness be sanctified to the glory of God. And essentially, this is then a call to heart religion. If it were to be dissected, however, these three aspects, we could say the heart then focuses on the intellect, the will, and the attentions. The soul encompasses all of the self, all desires, and can even include emotions. And the mind includes all of our thoughts and all of our reason. All of these are to be devoted to God. Now, when Moses gave this commandment in Deuteronomy, you'll remember, he gave this to a second generation of Jews who had come out of the land of Egypt, who had experienced the Exodus, God's deliverance of his people. They are now preparing under the leadership of Joshua to enter into the land of Canaan. And so Moses is exhorting them. He's instructing them. He is reminding them about what is required of them as a nation who are in covenant relationship with their God as they enter into this land. What is to define them as a nation? And it is this. It is to be love to God. Love to God. And notice the intimate nature of this. He says, love your God. That is your God who called you to himself in mercy. Your sovereign God. Your covenant making and your covenant keeping God. Your God who is faithful to you. Your God who has set his love on you. He is the one that is worthy of all of your love in return. He is the one who is worthy of your joyful obedience. That is the right and expected response to such a God as your God. Notice the second command. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now before we address this when I wasn't sure where to put this, but we'll put it right up front. This command has been utterly mutilated by many within the Christian church today, and you are well familiar with this. It is popular among some in this command, who are under the, some who are under the influence of modern psychology, not biblical hermeneutics, to transform this statement of Jesus to be an impetus or a command or an encouragement to love yourself, to love yourself. This verse is used all the time for that reason. 
And the idea goes, well, Jesus is obviously here putting the weight on the fact that you need to love yourself completely before you can begin to extend yourself in love to others. That is completely false and exactly the opposite of what Jesus is saying. I will just briefly note three points. First of all, the command to love your neighbor is attached to the first command to love God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind. In other words, it is loving your neighbor is a fruit of loving God supremely and completely. Secondly, the command is always attached to what we are supposed to do. He's not telling us what is the foundation of our love to neighbor. He's saying that we are to love our neighbor. In other words, it's a command that demands us in action to express love to our neighbor. And the third, the reality is we already love ourselves. And in our fallen state, we love ourselves exceedingly. We love ourselves exceedingly well. We have a natural sense of self-preservation and self-pleasure. The whole point of repentance, the whole point of the gospel is what? That we deny, repent, very good, and that we deny ourselves, that we deny ourselves. Congregation participation is good sometimes. I appreciate that. So the whole point of repentance is that we deny ourselves. As a matter of fact, Paul says it this way in Philippians. He says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind consider others as more important than ourselves, and that is then to have this attitude which was in Christ Jesus. So please understand that and don't be tempted, not that I expect that you would, to think in any way, shape, or form this is an encouragement to love ourselves. What is, where does the command come from? It comes from Leviticus 19.18. Leviticus 19.18. And this is actually the third time that Jesus gives this command or repeats this command in Matthew. He does it in chapter 5, verse 43, and in chapter 19, verse 19. The full statement of Leviticus is this. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, there was to be a, not to be an attitude of revenge or hatred towards your fellow Israelite, but rather you were to love them. And a few verses later in Leviticus 19.34, he's going to extend that out beyond just Israelites and to aliens and strangers who are in the land. And he reminds them that you are to love those aliens and strangers because you too were once aliens and strangers in a foreign land, namely Egypt. In Luke 10, 29-37, a lawyer is going to answer uh, or is trying to justify himself, uh, Luke tells us, and ask Jesus, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And Jesus answered by giving, if you'll remember, the parable of the Good Samaritan, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And essentially, the point of the, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan was that to answer this question, that love to your neighbor is at its most basic level to show goodness and mercy to all men. It is to show goodness for all of man, even one whom you would consider your enemy, which is precisely what Jesus had said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. If you love those who love you, what have you done more than the worst of sinners, more than Gentiles, and more than tax gatherers? You have done nothing, but you are to demonstrate the reality of your relationship to God by loving your neighbor, who is also even your enemy, one who is opposed to you. Now again, this is not as though they would not have acknowledged this. As a matter of fact, before that lawyer asked the question in Luke chapter 10, Jesus had already asked him a question about what is the foremost commandment. And in fact, the lawyer answered just as Jesus did here in Matthew chapter 22. He says it is to love God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. In other words, it is to love God with your everything. So again, the issue is not that they did not teach this or acknowledge it, but that they redefined it to fit their own ideas and their own system, which is why that lawyer was seeking to justify himself by asking who his neighbor was. In other words, they had relegated it to a system of doing, just another system of law, of legal requirements, and they missed the very heart of God. Now that being said, let's 
conclude with making five, or I think it's five or six observations here about these commandments. The first one is this, and this has already been hinted at. These are not two separate commandments. They are not two separate commandments. To say that you love God and yet have an indifference generally to people is a contradiction. It is a contradiction. These two commandments are inextricably bound. They are two sides of the same coin. The second, he says then, Jesus, is like the first. It's of the same nature. In other words, a necessary fruit of love for God is love for those who are made in His image. You cannot say that you love God and yet not love those who are made in His image. So these two things go, excuse me, go together. Listen to 1 John 4.20 when he says something similar to this. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Now there it is specifically written to the church and how they were treating one another, but the principle, as Jesus lays it down here in Matthew 22, applies across the board. To love God, or to say you love God and you know Him, is then to love men and particularly to love those who are in the family of God. So there is a particular sense in which there's a unique and special love to God's people, but it is a love that is to expand out to others generally. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 6.10. He says, let us do good to all people, especially to those who are of the household of faith. But again, this does not deny God's general love for humanity. His general love for humanity. And where do you think you might see that? A verse that we are so familiar with, John 3.16. What does the first word say? You can, it can be congregation participation. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. At the very least, this means that the Father has a love generally for mankind that motivated to send His Son to save some. Where do believers come out of? The world. The world. He so loved the world. He so loved humanity that He gave His Son that out of the world He would call some to Himself. We cannot deny that God has a general care and concern for those who bear His image in the world. He shows the wicked and the righteousness His goodness by sending rain, by sending seasons, by letting His Son rise and fall of them, by letting them experience the blessings of His creation. And we are then to display that same kind of love to man in general. Note secondly, the greatest commandments are not negative but positive. Not negative, but positive. As a matter of fact, except for the fifth commandment in the Decalogue, or the Ten Commandments, the only one that's not negative is the fifth one, that you shall honor your mother and your father. All of the other commandments are negative. You shall not. You shall not. In other words, don't do this. Because the commandments were given, those Ten Commandments, to restrain and reveal the natural bent for sin in the human heart. So he had to tell them what not to do because that is where their sin by nature would drive them. However, notice that these commandments are not from the Decalogue, nor is it in the form of a negative, but a positive command. Love God and love others is positive. In fact, the Ten Commandments are really the negative side of this command, aren't they? To love God with all of your heart, soul, and minds means you're not going to have another God before Him. You're not going to make an idol. You're not going to take His name in vain and so forth. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you're not going to covet. You're not going to murder. You're not going to steal. You're not going to bear false witness and so on. Now this is important to notice for this reason. So many approach spirituality negatively. In other words, my spiritual condition is based on what I don't do. 
It's what I don't do. It's my list of things that I don't do. I'm spiritual because I don't listen to this kind of music. I don't go to this kind of place. I don't watch these kind of things. I don't watch these kinds of movies. I don't hang out with these kind of people. I don't wear these kind of clothes. And that is usually, for many people, how spirituality is defined and how their relationship to God is defined. But that's not what Jesus is pointing us to here. It's not a matter of what you don't do that identifies the greatness and the reality of salvation. It is a reality of what you do. Many people can avoid such openly sinful things, but to truly know God, to truly love Him with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind takes a sovereign and supernatural work of the Spirit of God in the heart. That's why I say, to say if you are a Christian is not looking at the things that you don't do, or for that matter, really even do, but look out what is behind that. Do I positively love God with all of my heart, mind, and soul, and do I want to honor Him? In fact, that is the very reality of how we present the gospel and what the gospel calls us to. At the heart of the gospel and of salvation is a call to love God supremely. So often people think of coming to the gospel or coming to Christ as all of the things that I give up, is all of the things I can't do, and all of the things that I no longer will be able or allowed to do. And that's true, but that's not because so much of a negative prohibition as it is because it is a call to love God supremely and those things will fall by the side on their own. It is a call to love God. It is to bask in His love for me as a sinner. Now, this is what is awakened in the human heart in regeneration. It is to see the glory of God in Christ, to see the love of God for us in Christ. This is what Paul said in Galatians 2.20, The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That is another way of saying that he, by faith, loved God with everything that was in him because of Christ. Thirdly, notice this, that the love spoken of here is not primarily an emotion. The love spoken of here is not primarily an emotion. That is not to say that it does not include emotion, that emotions are not a part of it. Love for God is not emotionless. That is a contradiction to say that we can love God supremely and yet it can be absolutely devoid of emotional experience. That is not at all what is true. But it is to say that it is not primarily an emotion. We are made in God's image. We have emotions. God is not, if you've ever heard of this, impassable in the classic sense to say that He is utterly separate from any kind of emotional feeling. He's full of emotions and so are we. It is to say, however, that in light of love to God and this command, that we must consider it in relation to our emotions very carefully. First, though, I'd note that love to God is expressed passionately. Just two examples of this. Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Many of you, when you were, hopefully you still do, but especially when you were getting married or engaged or you found that one you were going to commit your life to, there was a constant preoccupation with them. Your thoughts were always going to them and hopefully that is the same too, even more so after many years of marriage. But the idea here is that there is an emotional aspect of our love to our spouse. There should be and so it is for the saint toward God. Psalm 84, 1 through 2 says this, How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord of hosts! My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. So these could be multiplied over and over. The point I'm making simply is this, that there is a deep and real emotional aspect to loving God with all of our heart. It is a longing for Him. It is a desire for Him. It is a wanting Him. And it is a joy in His presence. However, emotion in our fallen states comes and goes. It's fickle. It cannot be depended on. We don't even always know why we feel the way that we feel. We just do. And we have to take truth and bring our emotions into line. Now in heaven, of course, they will be steady. There will be unceasing joy. There will be unceasing delight in the person of God and of Christ. But that is because there is no more sin in heaven. So the experience of 1 Peter 
1, 10 through 11, of joy unspeakable will be the constant experience of those who are in heaven. But the emotion here, this, this idea of loving God is deeper than simply a feeling. It's an affection that goes deeper than emotion. You could say this, it is an affection and a godly affection that is a deep and settled inclination toward God that delights in Him Himself as holy and delightful, that it is convinced that in Him is the soul's greatest good, that it sees nearness to Him and His grace is all that is desirable, and it moves and directs the will to trust Him and to seek Him above all else. It is a lively and a vibrant trust and desire for God. Now, it's from that kind of affection, that kind of faith, that emotions do come, genuine emotions do come. But the reality is that sometimes we may feel just the opposite of happiness and joy in Christ. We may feel despair. We may feel abandoned. We may feel despondent. We may feel downcast. We may feel a sense of depression. But it is even in that state that true love for God can be demonstrated. That we cling to Him. That we turn to Him. That we seek to Him. Even in that place of despair like the psalmist in Psalm 42 where we still hold on to Him and His person and His grace and we see in Him our greatest good. So even when there can be emotional despair, emotional doubt, and emotional fear, we can hold on and cling to God in love. Why? Because true love for God is a soul that is totally inclined to Him, even though emotions rise and emotions fall. And that is important to understand. Negatively, and for this reason, that many seek emotional experience that get passed off as love for God, that gets passed off as love to God. But in reality, it's little more than a selfish love of the emotion itself or the feeling of love for God itself, not so much directed toward God. It is ultimately self-focused and it rests satisfied in just the way that it feels. And it's not really a matter of seeking God because they love Him, but it's like speaking and seeking an emotional or spiritual high and they just need to keep getting their fix. And that goes on very often in popular Christianity. And the mark is, just like those legalists who said that they loved God and yet they did not have a mark, heart marked by humility and justice and mercy. So the same test can be applied in this case. That some feel very emotionally fulfilled in God by going to some kind of event or by some kind of experience. But when they leave, their heart is not more humbled by sin. They are not more amazed by grace. They are not more drawn to adore God in His glory in a self-forgetful kind of way. There's not a greater and increased desire for His Word. There's not an increased commitment to live in obedience to Him and to trust Him in everything. I have experienced that many times speaking to people who would tell me on a Sunday morning these ecstatic experiences that they've had and yet as I would observe their life throughout the week it was not demonstrating any of these things. Any of these things. Edwards, who dealt with this in great detail, says this statement, Jonathan Edwards. And I'll just give you this one Paragraph on this point. He says, The more a true saint loves God with a gracious love, the more he desires to love Him, and the more uneasy he is at his want of love to Him. The more he hates sin, the more he desires to hate sin and laments that he has so much remaining love to it. The more he mourns for his sin, the more he longs to mourn for sin, the more his heart is broke, the more he desires it should be broke, the more he thirsts and longs after God and holiness, and the more he longs to long and breathe out his very soul in longing after God, end quote. That's what it looks like to have genuine affection toward God, to have genuine gracious affections. And gracious affection simply means this, those affections that are the product of grace in the heart, a product of the Holy Spirit. Note number four then, now they're not emotions, Uh, Is number three. Number four is this, that Jesus is not pitting love and law against each other or emotional feeling against the command to obedience. He's not making those two opposite things. He's bringing them together. He's not positioning love against law or vice versa. He's not saying they are antithetical to one another. As a matter of fact, God's law is essentially instructions on how to live out love for God and love for neighbor. For the one who loves God, his commands are a delight. 
In fact, the truest demonstration of love for God, I would argue, is obedience. Is obedience. Contented obedience to Him in His Word. Not regretful obedience, not anxious obedience, not fearful obedience, but contented obedience to God in every circumstance is the greatest demonstration of our love for Him. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 50, He said, Who is a child of God? It is the one who does the will of my Father. So Jesus said then, on this hangs the whole law and the prophets. Because this is at the heart of what it means to know God. And it's something then that transcends the Mosaic covenant. Again, this is foundational for humanity. This is what God requires from man simply by being man. And it is especially what demonstrates the reality of spiritual life in His people. To love God. But let me give you just an example of this. In Galatians 5, 14, he says this. You don't have to turn there. Uh, this is on the second, uh, second part of Jesus' instructions here. He says this in verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. The statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law is fulfilled in that. Now, he's already told this group of believers that you have the Spirit and you are united to Christ. Now, you live that out by loving your neighbor as yourself. It is a transcendent command. He'll repeat the same thing in Romans 13, 9. So, in other words, he's saying that everything God commanded in the law and that he spoke through the prophets flowed from and had the goal of producing and demonstrating love to God and others. Everything God spoke through the prophets was to confront His people for their failure to love God. And it was to call them to complete commitment to Him. Again, the truest mark of whether you know God or whether anyone does is whether you obey Him. Whether obedience driven by a love for Him is the truest mark of your life. Listen to what Jesus says. Just listen to these commandments. You're familiar with it. John 14, 15, He says... If you love me, you will what? You will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. What is the truest mark that you delight in and that you love God? It is that you keep His commandments. It is that when you feel in a pit of despair and you're fearful or you're distraught in life, that your love for God still tethers you to Him in an obedient faith. That you love Him, that you trust Him, and that you're willing to obey Him in all things. In John 15, 15, or excuse me, 15, 9, He says this, 9 and 10. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. How do we abide in our love for God and His love for us? How do we abide and remain in the experience and the fullness of this relationship? He says in verse 10, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. He ends later and says in the previous chapter this, So that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. How does the way know Jesus' perfect love to the Father? That He obeyed Him without fail. So the point here is this, that love and law, or love and obedience, are not two opposite sides of the same coin. They are something that works in unison. If you love Him, you will obey Him, and you will trust Him. Fifth, and there's two more, I'll go through these quickly. Number five, these commands expose the depth of our sin. These commands expose the depth of our sin. How deep our sin really goes in our hearts. How deep the roots of our love for self go into our, the heart, our fallen hearts. Now it's very easy and it's much easier to think that God can be pleased with a list of things that we do. That's an easy spirituality. That is an easy way to define and maintain a walk with God is you just make up your own list. This was the whole religion of Israel. We've seen it all through the ages, even today. It is to say by doing these things, God will be pleased. And that's relatively easy. 
But these commandments cut much deeper than that, and they get to the level of motivation. And the fact is that no one has or can keep these commandments to love God. Nobody can do that with a whole heart, soul, strength, and mind. Even David, even David, who was a man after God's own heart, had to pray, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin and renew a steadfast spirit within me. The most righteous among the Old Testament saints still had to bring a sacrifice for sin, for their failure to do this. We can't keep this any more than we can keep any other aspect of the law. So if we would look at this or ever use these commandments and say, just do this more, then we have missed the point. Jesus is not calling us to greater self-effort. But at one level, these commands cause us then to despair of our own effort and our own failure and drive us to grace. Because they cut through all of our religiosity and all of our morality in our external moral life. Now I'm going to have to mention this more quickly than I wanted to, but we have to see this in relation to Paul's uh, statement in Romans 7. In Romans chapter 7. He says this in verse, excuse me, 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For how I would not have known about coveting if the law had said, you shall not covet. Now what's important to note here is that coveting is essentially just the opposite of loving God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And he says that sin took opportunity through the commandment. It produced in him coveting of every kind. He says, I was once alive apart from the law, but the commandment came and sin came alive in him. And later he says that it killed him, that it killed him. Now, the reason that the command not to covet devastated Paul is that it cut past everything that was merely external and it revealed the secret motives of his heart. Now, you have to remember when Paul says that, as a Pharisee, he had an impeccable religious and moral life externally. Yet, the command not to covet devastated him. It absolutely devastated him. As a matter of fact, Paul's own testimony of his life in Philippians 3 is this, that he had a righteousness, that as far as the righteousness which is in the law, he was found blameless. He was blameless. There was no charge that could be laid against him on the outside. But when God awakened his command to the true heart of the law, which essentially we could say then was to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And when he understood that through the commandment, do not covet, he was devastated. He was devastated. He realized inwardly that regardless of what his outward life showed inside, he was a coveter. He had all kinds of motives, all kinds of desires that were not God-centered, that were selfish, that were apart from a love for God, whether it be the love of praise of man, the exaltation that he enjoyed among his brethren that he took greater delight in than God himself. Whatever it was, he was a coveter. He did not love God with all of his heart, soul, strength, and mind, and he was devastated by it. He was devastated. He was exposed as a coveter. And he was revealed as not loving his neighbor as himself. And this is what this command should do at one most basic level is reveal to us how short we fall from the glory of God. This should devastate the sinner. Devastate the sinner. And we should not shy away from in our evangelism simply from specific commands, but simply lay this before a sinner in evangelism. Have you loved God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind? God as he's revealed himself in scripture and in the person of Christ. Well, no. Well, then everything you've done is sin. Everything. There is no good thing in you. Then we can say not one thing. There is no righteous in you, righteousness in you. Not one thing. Because you can't even begin to have obedience or righteousness apart from a love for God, a love for Him. So there is a very real sense in which this command devastates us and it shows us how deep-rooted our depravity is and how deep it goes. But there is a second part to these commands and this is where we're in on this. These commands point us to Christ. They should point us to Christ. We don't want to jump right into these commands. What what Jesus is essentially doing with this scribe is not saying, now start doing this. 
It's like with the rich young ruler when he gave him these commands and said, well, do this. And he said, I did it. Well, Jesus is going even deeper now. And he's saying it's not doing what it is. If you want to truly obey the law, then do this. But we can't. We can't. He can't and we can't. So these commandments then point us to Christ. As a matter of fact, Matthew has already told us in chapter 5, verse 17, this. Listen. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. So everything that the law and the prophets pointed to, he is the fulfillment. And Jesus here is attaching that to loving God with everything and loving your neighbor as yourself. He alone is the fulfillment of that law. He alone accomplished and fulfilled this command perfectly for us. Therefore, the centrality and fulfillment of these commands are centered on the reality of Christ, and we cannot think of them apart from the person and the work of Christ. Indeed, it's perfectly right to say this. It took God to fulfill God's law, and it took God himself to demonstrate perfect love to God and perfect love to neighbor. No man who was merely a man ever did or could do that. Since the fall. Romans 8, 3 through 4 addresses this. So what is impossible for us, Christ did. So if you want to ask yourself, what does it look like then to love God perfectly? What example do I have of that? What model is my life to conform to? It looks like everything that we see in the person of Christ. His incarnation, his life, and his death. The motivation behind that of love to God. If you want to know what it looks like to love God completely, it looks like Christ. That's what it looks like. He lived his life in perfect obedience to the Father that flowed out of his love for him and his communion with the Father by the Spirit. Ultimately, that meant this, Philippians 2. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And isn't that exactly what he called his disciples to? You must be willing to follow me. If you love me, if you love God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind, then this is what I'm calling you to, and this is exactly what I'm demonstrating in my own life. It means that he went to the cross with the driving desire also that the Father would be glorified. So what does it look like? It looks like holding nothing back and loving obedience to God that he might be glorified in your life. What does it look like to love your neighbor perfectly? It looks like Christ. It looks like our God and King who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It looks like Christ who on the very night of his betrayal, it was said of him, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. Then he girded himself with a towel and he went around and he washed their dirty feet, only to later lay his life down that very same night through the betrayal to be fastened to a Roman cross and endure the rejection of his own people, his own friends, and his own father for our sin. That's what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself. It looks like the cross. It looks like the cross of Christ. You want to know what these commandments look like? They look like everything that Christ is. They look like the cross. It is to say then that this love is completely grounded and wrapped up in God's love shown to us in Christ. And it is a love that is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. By the Holy Spirit. That's how we can know this love. It is to say then that because of Christ... And because of what God has done for me in him, I will love him with everything that my life consists of. All of my affections, I will count him as my treasure. And I will rid myself in my life of those things that detract from that kind of heart affection love for him. I'll love him with all my soul, all my desires, all my opportunities. Everything that I have is dedicated to him as an expression of my love for him. It is to say that because of his love for me at the cross, with my mind, all my thoughts, I will demonstrate love for him in what I watch, in what I listen to, in what I read, in what I think, in how I reason. It will be a demonstration then of love for him. I will pursue that because of Christ and his life in me. It is to say that because of God's infinite love for me in Christ, by his spirit, I will seek to live with him for him with all of my might, all my energy, my time, and my strength for his service. That's what it means then to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
and to love our neighbors ourselves, which sees then I give my life as a sacrifice to serve them, as a sacrifice to serve them. And you know what? Even those of us who know him, we will fail at this dramatically. But that's the whole point. We failed, but Christ did not. Christ then is at the center of this command. He is the one that we rest in. And he is the one who gives us both the model and the foundation to live this out to the glory of God. Let me pray. And then we'll close. Father, thank you for the word. Thank you, Christ, for doing what we could not do. Help us to live out by your spirit and by our union with you this kind of life of love to you and to the Father. Help us to live out this kind of love for our neighbor, how prone we are to be critical and to judge, how prone we are to be selfish, and it's only your grace in us that can kill those things for your honor and glory and cause us to want to give our lives to you as an expression of our affection for you and our love for you and our trust for you. Will you do this work in us by your grace will you delight cause us to delight more deeply and fully in the cross and the reconciliation that we have with you through your dear and beloved son father we pray these things in the matchless name of christ amen